Okay, ladies, I think that we're going to try and get finished up here and resume for the afternoon. If everyone's kind of done their business and, <laughs> and we're ready. Um, before we get started here, I just want to make a couple announcements. Um, I just kind of want to talk about the decorations a little bit. Um, the booklets, obviously, are yours to take home. Um, my daughter-in-law, Haley, Seth's wife, helps us with de the decorations every year. She does such a fabulous job. And she has a grandmother who lives in California that she grew up with when she lived there, um, who's very instrumental in helping us put these things together, believe it or not. I very much consider her a part of this fellowship, even from far away. And um, she's very artsy, very crafty, and a very, very godly woman. She was a pastor's daughter and just loves being a part of our women's luncheons. And so she helped Haley put these little booklets together. She made the little um, things that are on the front. And um, so I know that she'll probably listen to this today. So Renee, I just want to thank you again for being such a blessing, an extended blessing to this fellowship. And Haley, um, thank you for all that you did and for bringing her into our lives. Um, also, we want you to take the vases home. Inside your vase is um, a dried and pressed forget-me-not. And that was kind of the theme flower that Haley and I wanted to use based on the scripture that we chose about not forgetting the benefits of the Lord. So um, please take those home um, so we don't have the hundreds of vases sitting around here. <laughs> And if there's, an, sorry, <clears throat> if there's an extra one at your table, please feel free to take them to a neighbor lady or anyone that you might, you know, think would enjoy something like that. So um, anyway, um, when I look over this room, I think about, um, you know, I see all of you ladies, and I'm so thankful that you can make it today. Thank you for taking the time um, to be here. I know that it isn't easy and there's a lot of shuffling of schedules and um, just things that you have to do to get yourself here. So thank you for doing that. Um, anyway, so as I look around the room and I, you know, I think about all the different seasons of life that each one of us find ourselves in, and I consider it such a blessing um, that we can come together to support and encourage each other in those seasons. The realities of these different seasons and the ups and downs, the unexpected, are all things that generally occupy our everyday conversations at the day-to-day -day level because they matter and because they're very important. Each need, each care, and each concern in this room today is a gift from God. It's a platform or an altar, if you would, of opportunity for us to decrease that we might see him increase in our lives. These are opportunities that he gives us, and he brings these things to us so that we might come to the end of ourselves to remind us that we are but flesh and yet to teach us and lead us into a deeper spirit-filled relationship with him as we cry out to him. It's been a joy for me to share in many of these different ups and downs and things that concern you in your lives over the past years, because the things that concern you concern me too. And I, it is a joy and a privilege for me to bear those burdens with you. Um, and that's why we're here today, um, to bring it all to the Lord's feet, to bring all those cares, to bring all those concerns, and allow the Lord to help us put them into perspective. 
into a godly perspective. I believe that God has a very special message for us today. And my prayer is that he would do a very precious work in your heart today as he has in mine as I've been studying for this. So I'd like to begin with a word of prayer. Father God, I thank you so much that we can be here today. It's a privilege, Lord, to be here with these ladies and to be in your presence all at the same time. Lord, we ask that you would be here in our midst. You promised us that where two or three or more are gathered together, you would be in our midst. And so we hold on to that, and we want to claim that right now, that you are here with us, and we thank you for that. What an amazing God that we serve who wants to dwell among his people. Lord, we ask that you would open up our hearts today, that you would help us, Lord, to receive all that you have for us. Would you fill us with your spirit, Lord, and give us understanding into the things that you want to speak to us today? I pray, Lord, that also your spirit would help us to retain these things, to keep these things within us, Lord, when we walk back out these doors, and that we would carry these truths with us for the rest of our lives, Lord, and walk in them. We love you, and we ask that you would bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, I told Lori, after I told her how amazing her teaching was, that I'm not as nice as she is because I have no scripture verses for you. (laughs) Not printed out ones anyway. I have many scriptures for you to turn to. So your first one is Ephesians. So I'd like to do a very quick overview of Ephesians. Um, You know, here at Calvary Chapel, we teach um, through the Bible. To the best of our ability, we teach line upon line, precept upon precept. We allow God's concepts and word and truths to build upon themselves to form a very strong foundation in your heart. But on these kinds of days, which aren't as often as every Sunday and Wednesday, the teachings tend to be a little bit more topical. So bear with us as you know um, we turn to different places in God's word to try to bring um, to light a truth, okay? So anyway, we're going to just kind of... Get a good understanding of this wonderful letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church. These Ephesians were Gentile believers. Okay, that's really important for us to know. In chapter 1, with much affection and praise, Paul reminds them of some of the foundational truths or pillars of faith that not only they, but we must hold on to. Chapter 1 is all about God's desire to choose us to share in his glory because of his unsearchable unsearchable grace. In verse 12 is our part of that blessing. He says in verse 12 that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory, on into 13, he says in him you also trusted. And that is our part in this blessing, to trust him that we might be to the praise of his glory. If we move on in verses 5 through 19, Paul gives us just a short little prayer for this church. He says, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? Okay, so I want to go back over that just a little bit because that's very important. Okay, he prays that the spirit of wisdom, revelation, and understanding be given to them that they may know him. We're going to focus on this word know just a little bit. Okay, now since this letter was written in Greek, we're going to look at the Greek translation of that word. In Greek, very much like in Latin, um, sometimes... There can be many words for one of our for just one English word. Our word, our language would be considered a little bit more generic compared to some of the ancient languages. And so, for this word, no, the Greek translation. There's one Greek translation. The first one is ginosko, and I'll spell that for you: G-I-N-O-S-K-O, ginosko. And this this kind of no means to personally, intimately, and experientially know something or someone. It is knowledge through experience. This knowledge takes time and is never complete. The Old Testament uses this word to modestly speak of intercourse between a man and a woman. Now at the day of judgment, Jesus declares in Matthew 7, 23, that many would claim to be his followers, but he would say, I never knew you. That is the word ginosko. The Apostle John laid the foundation of his gospel writings with this word ginosko, revealing the deep personal relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and their desire to impart that kind of relationship to mankind through the work of the person of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit given to those of us who believe. Jesus said in John 10, 14, and 15, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, Ginosko, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, I know the Father. Those words are all that same Latin word, gnosko. Okay, now there's another Greek word for the word no, no, and it's pronounced oida, and it's spelled O-I-D-A. This kind of word no means knowledge through observation. It is factual without the need for relationship. It's two plus two equals four. It's more scientific in nature. And yet, it is one of the first steps in knowing God. As in oida, knowledge of God can be essential in laying down doctrinal truths that awaken us to know our own depravity and understand who God is. When Paul talks about knowing God through many of his letters, and here, he is exhorting this church to not just know of God, 
okay, or simply observe him or just understand who he is, but so much more. He's calling them to go deeper, to experience him intimately, privately, often, that the depth of our knowledge of him is felt to the core of our being. Some of the other things that Paul wanted throughout this prayer is that they would know, again, ginosko, the hope of his calling. That they would know, ginosko, the riches of the glory of his inheritance. That they would experience these things. That they would feel them. And that, and forgive me, that they would know the exceeding greatness of his power. All these things are gifts that he has for us, not just in heaven, but here on earth, through that kind of knowing him. Now, let's move on to chapter 2. Chapter 2, Paul reminds the Ephesians who they once were, or where they came from, basically. Okay, He says things like, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves. He puts himself right in there, okay? But then he says in verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ for by grace you have been saved. It is a gift. It is not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is only by the blood of Christ that you are brought into this body of believers in the household of God as part of a holy temple in the Lord. We are his workmanship, if we will indeed allow him to work in and through us. Let's move on to chapter 3. In chapter 3, Paul explains how God chose him within this body to share this amazing grace with the Gentiles. Paul tells us in this chapter that of all the saints, he is the least deserving of this calling. In verse 8 and 9, he says, To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. Again, it's only because of God's grace shown to him that he can now share that grace to the rest of the undeserving world by preaching these unsearchable riches of God, which... He spoke of in chapter 1, and helping others to see what is the fellowship of the mystery. That is the gnosko that I want to talk about today, the fellowship of the mystery. Okay, he did that in chapter 2, providing an explanation of our, of our relationship with God once we believe. He closes this chapter with his heartfelt desire for the Ephesian church. He echoes his prayer for them that he shared in chapter 1. He says, starting in verse 15, let's do 16. 
He prays that God would grant them according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith, that they, being rooted and grounded in love, would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. He wants more than anything for them to share in the riches of the glory that Christ has. In verse 17, that as the Spirit dwells in their hearts through faith, they would be strengthened inside, from the inside out. When he says to know the love of Christ, that is the ginosko we've talked about, which surpasses knowledge, which is the oida that we talked about. When the Spirit is dwelling in us and love is working through us, we're able to witness and be a witness to that love. This love is not necessarily a feeling. At least it doesn't always begin that way. It's something that we learn through experiences in our relationship with him. It's an amazing process that we can be filled with his fullness by believing and trusting and allowing him to do for us and through us. And again, he desires that they would know Ginosko, the power of God, both to do and to will. Let's move on to chapter 4. Paul encourages equality in the body and shows the purpose of authoritative callings. In verse 12, he says, It's for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith. Paul finishes out this chapter and the rest of the letter with encouraging words about personal godly or ungodly behavior, how the family is to be a picture of Christ and his church, and finally an exhortation to be strong in the Lord, giving us a word picture of how we must be on constant guard against the wiles of the devil. Now, I'd like to move on from here and look at the last time that we hear about the Ephesian church, which is in Revelation chapter 2. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. And in this book, we have a direct message given to John from Jesus himself. In chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 17, Jesus tells him to write the things which you have seen. Okay, Now, these things regard chapter 1, 9 through 18. They basically talk about the appearance of Jesus in heaven at that time. He also tells him to write the things which are regarding the current state of the churches, and these are found in chapters 2 through 3. And finally, he tells him to write the things which will take place. These are chapters 4 through 22. These chapters are prophetic concerning the end times. Our focus today is going to be on the things which are. Right now, um, well, not right now, forgive me, let me go back. The things which are, okay? 
Um, in addressing these seven churches that were in Asia Minor, which is what it was called in those days, today it's modern-day Turkey, okay? It, we're, right now we're in the age of grace, okay? Um, we are in what we would call the church age. Um, I believe that Jesus addresses the church in these letters, in chapter 2 and 3, as a whole, throughout all time periods, from the beginning until the time that the church is taken up through these letters. And he brings to light the qualities of these churches, prevalent in this day and yet true to this day as well. Um, He brings out things that are pleasing to him, that are good, but he also shares warnings of things that need to be changed if that particular church wants to continue and thrive. These attributes and warnings are still to be heeded by the church today. Our focus is going to be on the message, the second message, given to the Ephesian church in Revelation 2. And I'll read that to you. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. And that's the focus of that. Now, if we compare these two messages that were given to the Ephesian church, the first by Paul, the second by John, Jesus is trying to tell them that what we would call the chapters, the portion of Paul's letter, chapters 4 through 6, that basically they have those things down. They've done very well in those things, in the works. They've done very good with their labor. They're patient. Um, They can't stand evil. They test people and have found them liars. They're laboring for his name's sake. But it would seem that in the work and daily grind of getting those things down as a body, they've somehow lost the intimacy, the relationship, and the first few fruits of communion with Christ. They've literally, in Jesus' words, left their first love. And that is Jesus in person and in their intimacy with him. The very essence of the unseen, holy intimacy of love between God and man, which is the driving force behind who we are and what we do, was lost and exchanged for the pride of life. Now, I'd like to turn to the book of James to try and explain this a little bit. If you'd turn there with me.
Now, make no doubt about it, James says in chapter 2, that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But if we really look at the context of that scripture, and we go back and we really read, back in the beginning of that chapter of 2, James begins with this, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Now let's explain partiality, okay? By definition, it's favoritism, a particular liking for, a fondness for, a bias, which is an unfair prejudice in favor for or against something. Partiality in James's reference, if you move on in the chapter and read kind of what he brings out as a reference, um, is shown in our relationships with others. Okay, which is very practical and happens a lot. But the flip side of holding our faith with partiality in what he is speaking with is truly at the heart of it is having greater favor and relational satisfaction in the works themselves than it is in the secret unknown communion with our maker. I believe that God wants to address this today in our hearts and he wants us to look at this side of our faith. Many of us in this room are seasoned saints. I'm sure you all have wonderful stories of how long you've known the Lord, how long you've served the Lord, and some of the amazing things that God has done in your life, and that's wonderful. Our testimonies are a blessing to us. But I believe the further that we come away from the day of our salvation, the greater danger we are in in walking in this manner and showing partiality in our faith. Holding our faith with partiality can take on many different forms and have many different faces. James's example of contempt for the poor is just one symptom. It's a symptom of a deeper issue. And I think that issue is the limitations that we can unknowingly have in our relationship with God and our fellow man. Jesus wants to continually take us deeper in our relationship with him. That kind of depth is often met with resistance from us because our faith may be challenged. We may feel lonely as God calls us to a deeper process of sanctification. There may even be persecution. Many are content with just entering into the service of God and remaining just that, a servant. But from what I've seen in Scripture and in my personal life, This heart of resistance and our relationship with God can creep in unknowingly. It's nothing we do on purpose. And quite oftentimes, it's something that comes in because of fear. Fear of losing a part of ourself. Fear for our flesh. Fear of losing our identity. The flesh is something that we hold on to with great pride. We have ingrained in the very fiber of our beings protective instincts. And some of these instincts are God-given. But much of these instincts have been built up through a natural selection of sorts. Survival of the fittest, you might say. We're born into a world of sin, death, and decay. And those who rely and act upon their natural fleshly instincts to survive pass those characteristics down to the next generation who then rely on not only those intuitive instincts, but they improve upon them with new and better ways, and the cycle continues. 
So you see, more often than not, holding on to our flesh is a voluntary act, not necessarily involuntary. I'm sorry, I said that backwards. It's not a voluntary act, it's involuntary. We do it without even realizing it. We don't have to work to set these instincts in motion, but we do have to work at suppressing them in the attempt to let go of our flesh and let God have his way with us. People take pride in many things. It could be reputation, their history, their character, their job, their family, their persona, their health, their physical appearance. We can take pride in our work ethic, our gifts, our privileges. We can take pride even in our offenses. It can become a platform. We can take pride in wanting to be right all the time. These things are subtle. We don't mean for it to happen, but it can. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, And I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. For that is what the flesh looks like when we let go of our pride. He goes on to say, My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul is expressing how he had to let every platform that he ever stood upon go. He had to count it as nothing. Everything that could have given him a sense of pride or comfort in the flesh, he forfeited. Knowing that God cannot truly work in a person who's holding their faith with partiality by leveraging their spirituality with their works. Letting go of our flesh makes us physically weak. It does make us fearful. It can make us even tremble. But it is at this moment and these times when we let go of our own expectations, our pride, and anything within us that can set itself up against what God wants to do through us, that the Spirit of God can really take over our bodies our minds for love's sake and cast out the fear, strengthen the feeble knees and command light to shine out of darkness to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And yes, we are so blessed to have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. This is what John the Baptist meant when he said, He must increase, but I must decrease. And it's in these moments that we know him, Ginosko. Going back to 2 Corinthians, I'm going to turn there real quick here. You don't necessarily have to. We won't be there long, but I don't have all these scriptures down, so I'm going to turn there for a minute. Going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul gives us a picture of what knowing God is in this way, looks like. So I'd like to read that again. We have this treasure. I'm going to start with 6. 
For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. In verse 8, he goes on to say, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. So it is when we are hard-pressed on every side, if we'll just trust him, we'll see that we are not crushed, yet strengthened. It's when we are perplexed, but instead of being in despair, we have a peace that surpasses all understanding. We know God when we're persecuted and we're not offended, for we know that we're in good company and have been called to partake in the sufferings of Christ. We may literally be struck down at times, but we trust and accept without fear that the ultimate destruction of these tents is in his hands. And he knows the number of our days. And in our returning love for him, we've given him our physical bodies to be put on the altar of sacrifice that we may, as it says in verse 10, always be caring about in our bodies the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. It is the expressed imitation of the incarnate truth that Jesus speaks of in John 12. I'll read that to you. This is one of my life verses. Jesus says, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, It's those life verses that do it every time. (laughs) Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. We see the weakness of his flesh because he's human, but he puts mind over matter. When in obedience to his Father's will, he says, but for this purpose I have come. It's how Jesus expressed his love toward us while we were yet sinners. And it's how we return that love to him. John 15, verse 13 through 15 says, Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. This is the relationship that Jesus wants to have with us. He wants more than just the servant-master relationship with us. 
He desires intimacy and love in an active, living relationship. We have a beautiful example of this relationship in Moses in the book of Exodus that I'd like to read to you. Verse 30, chapter 33, starting in verse 7. It says, Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people. He was always throwing that in there. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, Moses said to God, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I also will do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. So Moses said, please show me your glory. Then God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But God said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me. You shall stand on the rock, and so it shall be. While my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And then when I take away my hand, you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. To me, that is just such a beautiful picture of the back and forth talking and relationship that Moses had with God. Moses was called the friend of God. And that's why I wanted to share that with you. Because Jesus is asked us to be not only his servant, but his friend. Matthew 6 6 says, When you pray, go into your room. And when you shut your door, pray to the Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. More often than not, this relationship and the most beautiful part of it happens behind closed doors. That kind of intimacy in your marriage would only happen behind closed doors. And that's the kind of personal, quiet, um, nothing that anybody sees, relationship that God wants to have with us. 
And we don't necessarily go into this room for the reward, but for the communion and love that we can have with him because that's the kind of God that we serve. And that is where our relationship gets real. That is where change happens. That is where our minds can come into alignment with his will. The reward that we have is the outpouring of his love, the filling of his spirit through us and onto the lives of others. The two great commandments um, that he wants to fulfill in us are to first love God, because loving God empowers us to then do the second commandment, which is love others. Now I'm going to go back to Revelation. He says in Revelation that you left your first love. What is the remedy for that? He says to remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, to repent and to do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Okay, so we need, they need to remember where they have fallen, to repent and then to do the first works, the first works of repentance those first works of love, the first commandment, which is loving God. It appears to have um, this leaving their first love, this sin, because that's what it is, if we call it for what it is, appears to have been a choice, not an accident. And love is a daily choice because of the sinful world and the fallen flesh that we are subjected to every day. Falling into sin is not an accident It's a result of the daily choices in which we become complacent and merely possessing the outward look of a servant instead of the intimate, meek friendship that God desires. I'm going to go through several scriptures here because I want us to get a picture of this friendship like we did in Moses. God shows us so many wonderful pictures of what this looks like. And these things... The, the hearts that are shown through these scriptures are still the same kind of hearts that he wants us to have today. So the first one I want to read is uh, Luke 7. If you want to turn there, you don't have to, but you're welcome to go through these with me. Verse 36 through 47. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? 
Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. We see here gratitude through sacrifice. Let's move ahead a couple of chapters to Luke 10, verse 38. Now it happened as they went that they entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. One thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. We see sanctification through obedience here. Let's move on to John chapter 12. Verse 1. This is the same Mary, by the way. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he, first, whom he had raised from the dead. And there they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. This was the same Mary again, and we see in her her worship, and her love and adoration for Jesus. Back to Luke 18, verse 9. Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
We see justification in the humility portrayed here. We need to be careful not to move away from this heart. This humility and this understanding that we only stand this understanding that we only stand in his favor because of his great mercy is so important. We must guard our minds against the deceitful thoughts of our ever deserving something because of our works. Now, in the book of James, you don't have to turn there. Forgive me if I'm going to get back there real quick. In chapter 1, verses 23 through 27, James says, If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes observes himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. In verses 26 and 27, James challenges us in what we think about ourselves and our religion. The law of liberty is about love. Love for God, which results in a love for man. It can't be the other way around. We cannot rest our hope in our so-called religion, but our religion rests upon the foundational understanding that we're lost, that we were unloving sinners in need of salvation from our just reward. And in his love, God sent his son to be that propitiation for us. And when we receive that love and return it, the Spirit empowers us to love others. There's a reason that Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Jesus knew that they loved him, but that empowering of the Spirit would enable them to love others as they were loved. James urges us to continue in this and not be a forgetful hearer, but a doer of this work. To be careful not to deceive our own hearts, lest our religion be useless. Visiting the orphans and widows is a very good labor, but keeping ourselves unspotted from this world is the fruit of an earnest, passionate love for God. I'd like to read Matthew seven twenty one to you real quick. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is, lawlessness is labor without love. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 13. I'm sure this chapter is quite familiar to you. 
but I would just like to read it briefly. Paul says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Labor without love. Paul goes on to tell us what love is. Now here at Calvary Chapel, we teach abiding faith. I dare to say the church in Ephesus is in danger and has neglected this. Abiding faith is kind of the opposite of once saved, always saved. You had a once saved or born again experience, maybe as a young person, and yet you didn't really care about the Lord the rest of your life. You walked in sin. Um, You just didn't care. It was just something you did at Bible camp when you were young. We teach abiding faith, that we need to walk with the Lord and in that love every day of our lives all the way to the end. Paul teaches and talks of abiding faith probably more than anywhere else in the New Testament. Well, Jesus says, you know, abide in me. But if you would like to do a deeper study on that, Paul's a good one to read, okay? So I dare, uh, the church in Ephesus is in danger of this neglect. It would seem that they are laboring for good causes, but the people lack the backbone of their faith, which is love. No one is above this temptation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 12 through 13 says, Therefore, let him who think he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And in short, that is exactly what labor without love is. It's idolatry. We become more focused and worried about doing well and excelling in the labor and the works than we are about the work of keeping our relationship with Jesus Christ pure, holy, undefiled, and unspotted from this world, specifically through deliberate sins of our own flesh. Now, how and why does this happen? As we read through the Old Testament and we see all the amazing things that God does for his people, and we see them be refreshed through his works, and then he asks them to abide in that refreshing, but they neglect to do that, and they forget the blessing of the Lord. Their will and their faith begin to wane because our flesh is weak. Moses warns the people in Deuteronomy chapter 4, 9 through 10, to diligently keep themselves. And I'd like to read this. Again, Deuteronomy 4, 9 and 10 says, Take heed to yourselves and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. And teach them to your children and your grandchildren, especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, when the Lord said to me, gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. 
Now, what keeps us from this kind of abiding love? I think there's two main things that I'd like to talk about. There may be lots of other things, but I think think there's two main things. One is an apathy for the word of God and prayer. These two things are the life-giving force in our relationship with God. And when we fail to do them, it's like, you know, um, not being around someone. How are you going to ever get to know them? It's like losing touch with a distant friend, okay? Apathy for the word of God and prayer. Isaiah says in uh, chapter 30, verse 15, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. It is in this place where our mind and will can again align with God's. Romans 12, 1 and 3 Let me read that. We should all probably have this one memorized, shouldn't we? Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say... Through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Also in Psalm 51, the psalmist speaks of the sacrifices of God that are pleasing to him. He says in verse 16 and 17, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. And that's the place that our heart gets to when we get alone and we get with God. When we trust that everything that is beating down on us will be fine for a while, so that we can sit with our maker and get our mind in that right place and our heart aligned with his. We cannot neglect this. Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 12 through 16 says, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Spending time in God's word is what is going to teach you about yourself if you're having struggles, when you're going through difficulties, it isn't always because of what's coming upon you. A lot of it is because maybe you're inept to deal with it and you need to sit with him and read his word and allow him to fill you so he can teach you and equip you to do the things that he's called you to do. 
And that happens by faith, trusting that when you open this book, you have an open mind and an open heart, and you are going to receive something from him every single time. There's an anticipation. There's a hope. There's an excitement. We need our thoughts and our intentions discerned every single day. Like Lori said, it starts right away. Now, the second thing that can keep us from that abiding love, I think, and this also can keep us from the word, is sin. Okay? There's an old saying in the church that this keeps you from sin and sin keeps you from this book. Sin, remember, is a choice. It's not an accident. Falling into sin isn't an accident, okay? It's the result of our choices. Now, today I'd like to, in closing, um, I'd like to read about two sins that Jesus brings out in Scripture that can create a major stumbling block and even a wall sometimes and keep us from deeper intimacy with him and can ultimately even sever our relationship with him. As that is possible, as we see when he spoke to the Ephesian church, if you don't repent, I will remove the lampstand. Okay? It's up to us. So let's all turn to Matthew 18. Okay, we're going to start in verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison, Till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion 
on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you. And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to each of you, to you, forgive me, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So this parable is about forgiveness. Okay. Now in verse 29 and 30, I'm going to kind of go back over this a little bit. We read the fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And verse 30 says, and he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. I want to draw your attention again to the verse we've already read in James 1, verse 22. That said, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself. He goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. We see in this story, the servants are Christians of the... Um, the servants of the master are Christians, okay, and the master himself is Jesus. And we see them bickering. We see them being unforgiving toward one another. We see them, as my mother would have said, not being able to see past the end of their own nose. They've forgotten what they received, the grace and the mercy, and they can't give it out. Just like the two great commandments, we must love God, in order to love others, in order to forgive, we must constantly remember the forgiveness that was given to us. And if we're truly honest with ourselves and humble, we will realize that we were not only forgiven for all of our past sins at the time that we gave our lives to the Lord when we received Christ, but that we need to continually walk in the realization that we still sin. And we need to come to him in repentance every day and acknowledge that forgiveness and that that forgiveness came at a very high price and it's not to be taken lightly. Woe to us if we come to him in prayer and we do not first remember where we came from and where we are now. Our fallen state and our hopeless future without him, how we could how we can only stand in his presence because of his grace. When we hold our faith with partiality, we take the benefits of that grace through his forgiveness in vain. We forget the cost, the love, and the humility that it took to forgive the enemy. Our own humility is exchanged for pride, and we find that we can no longer give out forgiveness, that which was so freely given to us. We cannot fulfill the second commandment that says, love your neighbor as yourself. We deceive ourselves if we do all sorts of works for the Lord so that outwardly we appear Christian, and yet we cannot even forgive someone who has offended us. But instead, we hold on to bitterness, which develops deep roots and unbeknownst to us. We could easily fall into the sin of the Ephesian church. We have spiritually left our first love in that instance. That love being the person of Jesus Christ, for God is love. 
and the love he displayed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and continues to display through his resurrection, since he always lives to make intercession for us. The remedy, if you find that you are in this place, and we need to be honest with ourselves, we need to go back. That's what Jesus is telling us. Go back to that first commandment, to our first love. Be it ever so simple and make right that which we have allowed to become imperfect and imbalanced. We need to walk in repentance every day and do the first works, which leads to the second great commandment. Don't attempt to do the second if you don't yet have the first down. Now, Matthew 6 is the beautiful model of prayer that Jesus gave us. And in this prayer, in Matthew 6, starting in verse 9, we see him speaking to the Father, calling him ours, saying, holy is your name praying that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done in our lives and on this earth as it is in heaven. He teaches us to pray for our daily needs, and he teaches us to be thankful for the forgiveness that we have of our own debts and then praise for the strength to forgive those who have wronged us. So this is our model prayer, and it speaks of forgiving others daily. Okay? Daily. In um, Luke chapter 7, 36 through 47, when Jesus said, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. This doesn't imply that God forgives in different quantities or at different levels but it refers to the sinner's recognition for their need for forgiveness. The servant in Matthew 18 lost sight of his own need. Therefore, he could not identify with others who had the same need. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus says, I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus did so much to give us that gift of reconciliation, and he doesn't take it lightly when we're not willing to walk in it. He wants us to be quick repenters and quick forgivers. The gift isn't what really matters here. It's the heart. In 1 Samuel 6, 7, 16.7, it says, do not look at appearances. This is when Samuel is anointing the king, and it's David. 
For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It means nothing to God if you're harboring contempt or anger towards someone that Jesus lovingly died for. Our works aren't as important to him as the love that we have for people around us. And that kind of love can only come from a loving relationship with him. Romans 12, 16 says, Do not be wise in your own opinions. Repay no one evil for evil. Do not avenge yourselves, but give place to wrath, which is at the foot of the cross in prayer. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Um, I actually wouldn't like to read that a little bit farther. Forgive me. I didn't read my own note. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We need to take that even a step further, that vengeance. Jesus said, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. A lot of times our anger and our unforgiving hearts is because we were offended by something. And um, we choose how much we can be offended. It's our choice. um, It says in Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Now I want to go over our last scripture, Matthew 20. Just two chapters ahead of the last one. So we covered unforgiveness in Matthew 18 as a very, very deep, personal um, issue that can influence the depth that we are able to have with the Lord, okay? If we harbor unforgiveness in our hearts. Maybe some of you have wonderful testimonies of how you've been really hurt and were able to forgive that person which hurt you. And those testimonies need to be told. And I would assume, as I can say from my life personally, that when you truly are able to forgive as you have been forgiven, um, there is such a freedom, such a beautiful freedom that happens within you Because that unforgiveness is a weight. It is a weight. It is like bricks on your shoulders keeping you from going farther as a Christian. It is. And when that is released and when between you and the Lord, regardless of whether or not you're able to actually speak forgiveness to the person's face who offended you, you can forgive in your heart. And... um, Like Lori said earlier, when you empty yourself of that, God is able to come in and fill you to an overflowing amount that it's just spilling over. It's just spilling over. So that's one issue that I really feel like the Lord wanted to touch upon today. And this is the second one. In Matthew chapter 20, we'll read together, starting in verse 1. 
For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one hired us. And so he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called but few are chosen. There is equality in God's kingdom. He shows no partiality and no personal favoritism to any man. He shows no partiality based on the things that we have done for him. Those who are last and least will be lifted up, and those who are first and put themselves first, they appear to be foremost, will be kept at a level of equality with all the saints. And in this, our hearts reveal whether we are merely a servant who is focused on the work, or are we a friend whose focus is love. This parable takes the last parable to an even deeper level. At the very heart of this parable lies the ungrateful heart, a heart that has, because of its long and arduous service, deemed itself worthy or deserving. When a heart is elevated to this place, it manifests itself through pride, arrogance, selfish complaining, and ultimately, an unjust perception of those around it. This ungrateful heart has forgotten the covenant or the agreement with the landowner, and it has become more focused on the work. Here's the agreement. I chose you, you agreed to our arrangement, so I sent you into the vineyard to do your work. When it came time for the payment to be given, the ungrateful heart deemed itself more worthy than all others because of its works. This heart forgot about the covenant with the landowner and instead set its eyes upon all those around it and in turn developed much pride. It was now a competition. This heart had left the grace and love shown to it 
through the covenant made in the first place, and instead elevated itself above all others according to its service. And it now stands on a spiritual platform of works instead of grace, thereby making itself its own judge and plumb line and measuring the works of others by its own standards. There is a fear in this heart of being equal. It seeks first to validate its standing based on its works, and then seeks through greater works to be better than those around him. This is a picture of us, the labors, and how our fleshly expectations can rise up within us through our service to the Lord and can get the better of us and distort our relationship with others and ultimately our Lord. I'd like to look at another quick story I'll read to you. You don't have to turn here. That shows an even better picture, in my opinion, of this heart. Luke 15, starting verse 21. Actually, it's a long story. I don't want to have to read it all. Um, it's the story of the prodigal son. Okay, So after the son had asked the father for all of his inheritance and went out, and squandered it all, and lived a life that was in in no way respectful to what the father had done to him. He realizes his failings and his failure, and he comes back to the father. And that's where I'll pick up here. He says, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. What a beautiful picture of forgiveness. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came... Who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. We see here jealousy, 
based on expectations. And can you blame him? I mean, let's all be honest. It's very real. We can all talk about hard things that you've gone through in your life. We all have a story. When you've been treated unfairly and you questioned God. But God wants to take us out of that place. He wants us to realize that he loves all of us equally, even though it might seem to you outwardly, that's where your focus is, that one person's being treated one way and you're being treated another. Okay, That is not where we find our love from God in our outward circumstances. We can't. We live in a world of sin, and we are all subjected to that sin. No matter how good, honest, pretty, wonderful you are, you are going to be subjected to sin yourself and the sins of other people. But God does not want to keep us in that place, in this place. God wants us to find our love in him and in him alone. That is the only place where we can have any kind of standing, hope, understanding. That's what I'm talking about here today. It is so normal to be tempted in this way and to feel this way. I'm not trying to shame anyone. I've been here and I'm here quite often. And I have to go through this often. I get my eyes off of him and I start looking outwardly and I fall into this same comparison game. And it is dangerous to your relationship with the Lord. And your relationships outside, you know, just your friends. We don't deserve anything. We have to constantly take ourselves back to that place and remember what we have been given and that it was only by his grace that we were given that. We didn't do anything, and we need to be so careful that we don't build platforms in our hearts that ever cause us to think that we deserve more than we do. I'd like to read through some scriptures here. Ezekiel 28 Verse 12 through 17, this speaks of the devil. It says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. He's speaking of the devil here, Satan. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. 
You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You are the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You are on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Let's compare this to Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a beautiful example we have in our Lord. We see the progression of humility here in even our Lord. Paul tells us that he himself had to help others work through this temptation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, he says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another and what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? He even speaks about himself having to work through this temptation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 7, he says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Peter also, in the book of John, chapter 21, 
we see him struggle with this. This story kind of makes me giggle a little bit. I don't know why. It's just so human, so, so us. John 21, verse 15. We'll start there. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? <laughs> Already he gets his eyes off Jesus and on to John. And Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. We need to keep our eyes on the Lord. Hebrews 12, one of our final. Verse 2. Well, I'll start with verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we need to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Again, we don't deserve anything. But we can begin to feel that we do when we get our eyes off of Jesus and onto those around us. When we begin to look circumstantially and worldly, instead of keeping our eyes focused on him and what we have been given and why we were given it. Again, the remedy in Revelation 2.5 says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. I want to again read the scripture in Ephesians 2 that speaks of our covenant. We need to be reminded. This book is so preciously written about our relationship, how it came to, about, came to be, what God has done for us. It's just, for those of you who maybe don't have, find yourself in a consistent daily Bible reading, this is such a wonderful book to read over and over and over and over again. I encourage you to do that.
They're all good. Of course, they're all good. But I get a lot of questions. Where do I start? So this is a good place to start, okay? If you're a new believer and want to know um, doctrinally and then relationally, okay, what God wants and has done for us. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I would like to take communion today. I'd like us to both, both all um, come to that place in our minds and in our hearts. We're going to go back together personally, and as a church body to that beautiful place where we remember what he has done for us, why we first came to him in the first place. Maybe remember the trials that you were going through. What was it about that time that was so precious, so miraculous, that you found yourself at the foot of the cross receiving grace you did not deserve, mercy you did not deserve, but it was being poured out upon you through his love for you. So what I'd like you to do, and I'd like the girls to come up here and start getting themselves ready, is if you don't mind, if you could pass around the bread and the juice that I already have sitting on your tables. And I'd like to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now think about how often they didn't have little cute pieces of bread that we have that Andrea made for us. He's talking about every time you break bread, bread was the most important food that they ate in those days. They ate it at every meal. They ate it three to four times a day. As often as you break bread, remember me. And they, they didn't drink a lot of water in those days. I think we talked about this last year, okay? In that culture and in those days, grape juice was called wine. They didn't call it grape juice. They had different levels of grape juice all the way up to true wine, which we would say is definitely wine, okay? That's all they ate because their water was intoxicating, right? They drank wine for all of their meals all the time. And what he's saying is as often as you drink this, which is all the time, remember what I've done for you. So that's what I want to do. I just want to take a minute of silence, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to partake together. Father, forgive us if we've left you in any way. Forgive forgive us if we have allowed our fleshly expectations through seemingly good intentions to rise above your most holy will for us. Forgive us when we exchange your will for our own. Forgive us when we put our work for you above our time with you. And allow our hearts to be elevated by our works instead of humbled in your holy presence, remembering all that you've done for us. Forgive us when we forget the hope of this calling that you have given us, and we falter for lack of power within us. Forgive us when we fail to give out the same grace that you have so freely given to us. When we neglect to forgive as we have been forgiven. Instead, Lord, would you open the eyes of our understanding that we may know you and the hope of your calling upon us, that you would grant to us according to the riches of your glory and strengthen us in our inner man by the power of your spirit. Would you dwell in our hearts through faith Would you root us and ground us in your love, that we might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, that we might know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you, that we may be filled with all of your fullness. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus.
to all generations forever and ever. Amen.